Now, we're looking at Joshua and we're looking at the book Joshua, we're looking at the man Joshua and I just want to start by asking, what's in a name? When you see Joshua, what do you think of? And names are very important to us. If I was to tell you that I was going to change your name, you might tell me that that's not something you want to do. And I just want to ask, if you really know someone, is it possible to know them without knowing their name? Because I would think that if you don't know their name, you probably don't know them very well. And names are funny things. My name, Alec, is sometimes used as part of an insult. It's not a very good insult because you can get called a smart Alec. And as insults go, that's probably not so bad. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind being called that sometimes. The longer version of my name, Alexander, is an old Greek name. That apparently there was a general who conquered the world. And if my parents or anyone else who calls their kid Alexander was thinking that I or any of them were going to conquer the world, then they may be a little bit disappointed. Uh, names usually go in families and they have some meaning to that family and obviously once you've got a name, it's got some meaning to you. But in the Bible, names usually have a broader meaning. And sometimes people's names get changed. And that's the case with Joshua. Joshua is a name, his name started out as Hoshea, which means salvation. And then without explanation, Moses says, I'm changing your name to Josh Hosea, which is, we shorten to Joshua, which means God's salvation. And usually when your name gets changed in the Bible, that means that you've got to live up to that name. And through some quirks of translation, what we know as Joshua, if you go from Hebrew through Greek and Latin to English, you get Joshua. If you just go straight from Greek to Latin to English, you get Jesus. So this name Joshua in the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same name. And maybe that helps to explain sometimes the disciples are thinking, well, the last Joshua we, knew, Joshua we knew was a warrior who came in and conquered the land. Maybe what, that's what this new Joshua will be doing. And we actually have some hymns. Remember the old hymn that starts, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching As To War? Well, that's looking at Joshua and it's looking at Jesus. But this time we're going to be looking at Joshua, the Old Testament Joshua. And why are we looking at Joshua? Has anyone been here for the last few weeks? Stu has, good. The rest of you, I'm starting from scratch, that's okay. We'll run through it quickly. Um, we've been looking at the Old Testament. I'll jog your memory, I'm sure you remember. We started right at the beginning, and not just the beginning of the Bible, but the beginning. And we looked at creation. God created everything and it was good. Not long after... The two people that God had created decided that maybe they knew better than God and sin entered the world. From there, things kind of got worse until God looked at the world and the violence in the world and the sin in the world grieved him to his heart and he decided to destroy the creation with a flood. But he saved some animals and one family and from there he was going to start again and that's where the rainbow comes in. In the Noah story. Then we went uh, quite a long time after that. There was a man called Abraham and God made some pretty important promises to him and those promises are very important to what we'll look at in Joshua today. Amongst other things he promised him land, he promised that his offspring would be a great nation 
and that that nation would be a blessing to the world. In the meantime, the nation grew, but they ended up in Egypt and they weren't exactly a great nation, they were a nation of slaves. But God heard their cries and they were saved out of Egypt to head towards the promised land. On their way, they stopped. And Moses and Joshua, as it turns out, went up the mountain and God gave them the law. So he saved them. Then he explained to them how they can live with him and how they can live together. From there, it should have been straight to the promised land. And if you are here last week, you would have found that actually that's not quite how it worked. The people were, last week when we were in Numbers, 40 years before where we are now, in pretty much exactly the same spot. They were ready to cross into the land that had been promised to them, but they weren't faithful to God, even though God was faithful to them. And they didn't trust that the God who'd been, who'd been able to save them from the mightiest army in the world by making the Red Sea part in front of them, he couldn't help them when it came to the promised land. And so that generation died in the desert. But we're back there again, and if you can see the picture up on the screen there, you'll see we're up to the promised land, and there's some green grass there. And if you remember last week, Stu told us that the grass actually is greener on the other side. And Joshua, at least, knows that that's true, and he's going to lead the people to it. So... We've been working our way, we've started in Genesis, we've made our way all through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy and now we're at the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua. And Joshua is a section of the Bible that the church calls the historical books and that goes from Joshua through to Chronicles. And these books cover a period of around about a thousand years. But Joshua and all the history that follows on, on from it is based on the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And not just chronologically, but theologically. And none of what happens from now on in the Bible will make any sense to us unless we understand the beginnings of these people who are called Israel. And Israel is the name of the people and Israel is a name that means struggles with God. And it's a pretty good name for this group of people, as it turns out. And so what comes now in Joshua is a response to and a development of what we saw in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And all this history, this thousand years that's coming up, in Joshua it starts well. In Joshua, the people, Israel, enter and possess the land promised to them by God. That's the short version, and that's what we're looking at today. And if we were telling a Disney version of this story... This is probably about the time we'd say something like, the people enter the land, Joshua is crowned king, everything is going well and they all lived happily ever after. We could close the Bible, that would be the end of the story, the end of the Bible. After all, they're in the promised land that had been promised to them for centuries. They were there now, they were in it. But we know it isn't the end of the story and it's not the end of the Bible. And we find out much later in the story that Israel are forced to leave this land, the land that had been promised to them, or as Jeremiah in his understated way, the land vomits them out. 
because of their sin and unfaithfulness. But for now, we're just going to look at Joshua. And instead of thinking about strength, courage and conquest, which is how we normally think of Joshua, as we make our way through Joshua today, keep in the back of your minds these words. Promises, faithfulness and rest. Because I think in the end, that's what Joshua is all about. Now, I don't know how much of you know know about Joshua... Most people probably know at least these three things. One's the Battle of Jericho and there's marching around the walls. There's the sound of trumpets, walls tumbling down. Or they might have heard of Rahab, who helps the Israelites spies and with the help of a crimson banner hanging out of the window, she's saved and even makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. Or maybe you might know a few words from the end of the book in chapter 24 when Joshua concludes, As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And for many of us, that about does it for Joshua. But there's lots more to it, and we're going to go through quite a lot of it tonight. Got a long way to go and a short time to get there. What I want us to be thinking about, though, as we take a few minutes to look at the book, are faithfulness and adventurousness and rest. So let's be strong and courageous and make our way through Joshua. But I want to start with the question, why is Joshua in the Bible? Well, on one level, it's a conclusion to everything that we've heard up to the end of Deuteronomy. It helps to tie up some loose ends from last week's sermon from Stuart. What did happen to Caleb and Joshua? How did all of God's promises about land and nationhood turn out? How did it all end up with those Israelites? But it starts baldly with, after the death of Moses. And by mentioning Moses and his death, we're reminded that a whole generation had failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. So in just a few short words, we're reminded that disobedience and a lack of faith has deadly consequences. But now it's a new day. And it's a time of rejoicing and we see that no amount of disbelief, even a whole generation's disbelief, can frustrate God's plans. So now we have a whole nation on the brink of entering the land that God promised long ago to his people. And just to put yourselves in the shoes of Jericho and I just for a moment, let's just imagine there's around 600-ish thousand people just on the other side of Camden Valley Way camped out We're in Jericho, Harrington Park is I. We're hoping that the River Jordan or Camden Valley Way doesn't part and they make their way across. But we'll probably be okay because we've got some walls and what are they going to do anyway? So let's just keep that in the back of your mind as well. It's not far away, it's a lot of people and apparently they're heading this way. So there's this whole nation, they're on the brink of entering the land. And they think it's theirs because it's been promised to them by God. So we see Joshua is something of a conclusion to the history and promises that we read in Deuteronomy, up to Deuteronomy. But it also looks forward to the history to come. But in the end, Joshua is a sermon. And it's a sermon of encouragement. And the clues to knowing what it's all about are from the kind of literature it is and how the book's organised. 
And it may help you to know that while the church calls Joshua part of the historical books, in the Jewish tradition the Old Testament is organised differently and Joshua is the beginning of a section known as the former prophets. So the style and interest of the book is prophetic. It's to bring people back to God. So there's clearly a historical dimension to these books, but like other prophetic books, they're not simply concerned with recording history for history's sake. Instead, these books are really interested in how God was at work in the events that they describe. So while we can acknowledge that Joshua does record actual historical events, we should understand that the author's purpose is primarily theological. And if theology sounds like something for other people to do, we need to understand that we're doing theology right now, all of us here. St Anselm, who was around about a thousand years ago, was Archbishop of Canterbury, so an Anglican like us. He said that theology was faith-seeking understanding. And theology is just a long word that means thinking and talking about God. So we're all doing theology now. So if you want to put that on your business card next time you get them printed, you can put your name, theologian. And Joshua wants to preach to us using history as his text. So in the end, Joshua is a sermon. And we'll be concentrating on chapter 1, but we need to get the context of the whole book. So we're going to rush through it quickly. First of all, Joshua can be broken down into three sections. In chapters 1 to 12, we have a description of the conquest of the land. And this is where Joshua leads the people to clear the land of all the bad guys. It's the section where we get stories of Jericho and walls tumbling down, coming tumbling down and all that dramatic stuff. Then there's a middle section from 13 to 21 where the land is divided up amongst the tribes of Israel. We get this tribe getting that section, that tribe getting this section and so on. Then the last three chapters, 22 to 24, is Joshua's own speech explaining everything that's happened in his life and everything that's happened in the life of the people. And then Joshua ends, much like Deuteronomy ends, with God's chosen leader reminding God's people of God's steadfast love, faithfulness and justice. And much as I'd love to go through every chapter in great detail, we don't have that much time, but let's look at some of the highlights and we'll go quickly. Chapter 1, which we heard read tonight, opens with the call to courage and strength and to take the land. It's a call to arms. A call to courageous faith. And the first two stops are Oran Park and Harrington Park, or Jericho and I. And they want to make sure that they divide the land into north and south, and then it'll make the whole conquest quicker as they divide and conquer. Then chapter 2, we're introduced to Rahab. Now Rahab's not only a Canaanite, but also a prostitute. And the way she's spoken of in this book, Rahab's an example of faith and an example of grace, and just maybe the only Canaanite worth saving. And if you want to read more about Rahab, you can find her in the New Testament. She makes it into Hebrews 11 in the catalogue of the heroes of the faith. She's mentioned in James 2, and of course in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. 
So the very first story in Joshua is about a woman living a sinful life amongst a sinful people and she receives grace. Because in the end, that's what God wants for all humanity, that they would turn to him so he can show mercy. Chapters 3 and 4, there's a reenactment of the Exodus. So just like at the Red Sea in the Exodus, the River Jordan is peeled back and God shows that the engine of redemption is cranking up again and this new generation gets to see for themselves that their God acts with great power to save his people. Chapter 5, it's about being, about being obedient and emboldened in faith. And it seems that this new generation had missed at least one and maybe two big things in all their wanderings in the desert. They hadn't practiced circumcision and it seems possible that they didn't celebrate the Passover. So now they start these again. All the men are circumcised and they celebrate Passover and after this Passover, where they eat the produce of the land, that's when the manna stops. So God's been sending manna to feed the people for 40 plus years and after this when they eat the produce of the land for the first time and after this Passover the manna stops and at the end of this chapter there's also one of the more dramatic passages in the whole book this is where Joshua meets a mysterious man with a drawn sword we'll come back to that later then in chapter 6 finally after five chapters, we finally get to the battle. And it makes you wonder if the battle really is the most important thing. Nevertheless, here we have this triumphant victory where the people march around the walls of Jericho, maybe reminding them of their march through the wilderness. They march around the city 13 times. Once a day for six days, then on the seventh day they march around seven times. The walls fall down and the city is destroyed. It's a great victory. But then, in chapter 7, there's a stunning reversal. The people may be thinking that they were the ones that won the victory. Against a much smaller city with a smaller army, they lose. And why did they lose? Well, because of the sin of one man. One man disobeyed God, but the guilt is on the whole community. And God chooses not to ride out with them that day, and they lose. In chap chapter 8, the man's punished, and the people do triumph over I. We get to chapter 9, and there's a stranger story when Israel's deceived by the Gibeonites, who were scared for their lives, and they come to Israel and they claim not to be from the land because they know that every people in every city will fall before the power of God. So they pretend to be from somewhere else and the Israelites are tricked into a treaty with them because, as the text says, they did not consult the Lord. In chapters 10 to 12, we start with a description of the de defeat of five kings and then we simply get a list of all 31 kings and cities that have been destroyed. They're all listed for the people to know that this is what God has done for them. And then we're at the end of most of the action. Chapters 13 to 21 describe the land being divided among the tribes. 
And it's the fulfilment of the promises. There are a few hints in this section at later trouble with a couple of different lines that say things like, but they did not drive all of the people out of the land. But mostly this section is full of names and lists and places and it's much like some of the sections of Numbers. Then we get to chapters 22 to 24 where Joshua brings the people together and preaches a review. He tells the people, in case they missed it, what the most important thing was during all this time. That their promise-keeping God was faithful and kept his promises. So the book's organised like one big sermon and like any good sermon, the hero is God. And the thing that holds all this history together the thread through all of Joshua is God always keeps his promises. And related to that, this promise-keeping God demands obedience. So the first sermon within the promised land is a sermon about God keeping his promises. And it's there to be an encouragement. Because we need a book like this, just like Israel needed a book like this. And if we jump ahead in Israel's history, about a thousand years from Joshua, Israel is kicked out of this land, the promised land, for their unfaithfulness. They're evicted from the land, their homes are destroyed, and they're moved to a foreign country. And they must have wondered, what happened to those promises made to us? This book reminds them that God always keeps his promises. All of them, even the promise to judge sin and disobedience. And maybe this is one of our biggest problems. Do we wonder if God will keep his promises? When things are going badly for us, do we start to wonder if God really is good? Does God really care about us? Will he keep his promises? Can God be trusted? And that's why the 24 chapters of Joshua are in the Bible. To encourage us to be faithful and to trust and obey. Because God always keeps his promises. So let's go back to chapter 1. Which is an introduction to the whole book. Chapter 1 is a reminder It's a reminder of the promise God made to give his people a land. In fact, seven times in chapter 1 we're told that God had promised and still promises to give the people the land. And in fact, in verse 3, depending on how you translate it, it says, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have already given you, as I promised to Moses. So all that remains is for Israel to enter the land. And every piece of the land that they possess will be the result of conquest. But whose conquest is it? As it turns out, the land isn't really Israel's by conquest, but by gift. The whole earth belongs to God, and he can give it to whoever he pleases. And this promise of the land wasn't a new promise to Joshua. It wasn't even a new promise to Moses. But this was the fulfilment of a promise made to Abraham close to 500 years before. That God would give this land to Abraham's offspring 
and that they would be a great nation. So did God keep his promises? Joshua in chapter 21, verse 43, he says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. This is Jacob's review of everything that's come before. And if you've read Joshua recently, you'll know that in chapters 13 to 21, it's pretty dry reading. There's not a lot of action. It's repetitive and it's full of lists of names and places. But even if these chapters are not our favourites, they're a little bit like the terms and conditions of a contract or the title deed to your house. Not much to look at, but the meaning is in what they represent. Joshua is saying, look for yourself. Here are eight chapters of God keeping his promises to every family in every tribe of the people of Israel. Every tribe is singled out and given the land they were promised. But God also promised to give them rest. Rest is is mentioned a couple of times in chapter 1. And when we hear rest in the Bible, our exegetical radar should go off and send us back to Genesis. And in Genesis, we know that God rested after his work of creation. But with the introduction of sin into the world, restlessness also came into the world. There's unrest between Adam and Eve from then on. There's unrest between their sons to the point where Cain ends up killing his own brother Abel. The unrest continues and things descend from there until by the time of just before Noah we hear that the violence in the world had become so great that it grieves God to his heart and he decides to wipe out the creation. But God's desire is always to give rest back to people. And he even gave us a day of the week to rest, one day to remind his people that to come to God is to find rest. And we know from last week, if you were here, that the generation that died in the desert because of their lack of faith were told that they would not enter his rest. But to be honest, if you have been here the last few weeks and you've been following the story of the people of Israel You've got to wonder if the people even want the rest that God's offering. They at least say that they want to go back to Egypt and get back to work and to be slaves. But God still keeps his promises even to them. And so in chapter 21 again, verse 44, it says, The Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their ancestors. But this rest doesn't last very long. It ends not long after Joshua dies. And there's another brief moment of rest mentioned when King David defeats his enemies. But we know that that rest barely lasted until David's death. And then we don't hear much about rest for a long time. But if your exegetical radar is still pinging, You'll remember these words from Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In Joshua, Yahweh offers the people rest. Then later, the new Joshua 
God incarnate, again offers us all rest. And this is the kind of rest, not just from being a bit tired, but from being weary. And if you've ever had to work on a really long project, if you've ever had to make a long journey of, I don't know, maybe 40 years, you'll be weary and you'll need rest. And if any of you have or have had young kids, you'll know that there's a weariness that goes along with having a long day and knowing that even if you get some rest, the next day will be another long day and the day after will probably be another long day. And we're weary and we need rest. But the Israelites thought back in Joshua that the land was the object and the end of the promise but it was the presence of God and his rest. Because rest really is the essence of salvation. When we stop working to appease God, just stop work, and realise that everything has been done by Jesus, we can rest. So we see that in chapter 21, Joshua says that they have rest... But then we read later in Hebrews, in the New Testament in chapter 4, which is a chapter all about rest for God's people, it says this, from verse 7 in chapter 4 of Hebrews, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest and we just read that he did give them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. We just heard that Joshua did give them rest, but it was a limited anticipation of the permanent enduring rest in Jesus, the new Joshua. So don't harden your heart. Turn to God and find his mercy and rest. So, so far God's promised them land and he's promised them rest. God also promises them success and prosperity. But this is a particular kind of success. They'll get the land, they'll get rest from their enemies, but their success will be that they know and understand God. That's God's prosperity and God's success. The measure of Joshua's greatness was not his military prowess and strategy or his leadership skills. Joshua's success was that he trusted and obeyed the God that he knew. And this is also where our greatness is found. Joshua didn't divert from the law to the right or to the left, and he didn't divert because he knew that God keeps his promises. So Joshua is an encouragement to risk-taking, adventurous faith. There's a fourth promise in chapter 1. There's the land, there's rest, there's success and also God's presence. 
God says, I will be with you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And God keeps that promise too. Later in Joshua, when we read in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence, is mentioned 16 times. When they go to cross the Jordan, their first obstacle, the Ark of the Covenant goes first. It's a visual reminder to the people that God is leading them and gets to their problems before they do. Then later in chapter 6, the image is repeated and the Ark of the Covenant and the priests are in the front and centre of the battle. The people can see that God is right there in the thick of the fighting and God is fighting for them. And if God's presence was assured to Joshua, then how much more to us? God has sent his spirit to live in us and he will never leave us or forsake us. God is with us. And God is not just with us here. Tomorrow, when we go to work or to school or to the supermarket or to the doctor or the park or just to the front door, God says he's with us. But there's always this conundrum. God makes these promises, but he knows the unfaithfulness of his people. So how is this all going to work out? Well, in chapter 23, we hear that it's the Lord your God who has fought for you. That phrase is repeated throughout Joshua. So Joshua reminds the people that it's actually all about what God's doing and not what we do. Joshua gathers the people in chapter 24 and tells them what the Lord says. And this is what God says to them. I took your father Abraham out. I gave him Isaac. I gave Isaac, Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses and Aaron. I afflicted the Egyptians. I brought you out. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hands. Then I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So this is all God's plan and God has acted. And Joshua understands this and he understands better than anyone because back in chapter 5, on the eve of crossing the Jordan and marching on Jericho, Joshua was there geeing up the troops and maybe doing his Henry V speech from Shakespeare, making sure they understood once more into the breach and all that sort of stuff. But it says in verse 13, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Joshua sees a man with a sword in his hand and he asks him, are you on our side or on their side? And the man says, no, I'm here to be the commander and you can take my side. So when they head into battle, God is the one doing the fighting. Do nothing, take off your shoes and be quiet. And whatever picture people might have of God, maybe a strict parent or a kind of policeman, just a grand old man, we're trying to domesticate God and put him in a box. We might let him out when we need him. But God isn't a lucky charm and he isn't our secret weapon. He's this man, the almighty God, whose presence alone demands obedience and humility. This same God who appeared face to face to Moses in a tent appears to Joshua as a warrior. God will be for his people whatever they need at the time. And Joshua needed a warrior who would fight for them. Now, if you've read through Joshua, I think, frankly, there's some parts that are troubling. We're bothered by this kind of warfare. How can the God that we know command the total destruction of entire cities? Nothing was to be left breathing when they were finished. And I think that it's right that we should struggle with this. But we also need to remember that the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the otherites in the land weren't innocent victims. Remember that they'd been given hundreds of years to repent. And we know that it was possible and that they were capable of knowing and understanding God because in Rahab, one of them does. And much later in the story of Jonah, we hear about a whole city, Nineveh, repenting and turning to God. But apart from Rahab, the rest of them, well, the cup of the Amorites was now full. They continued in their sins. And these were people that sacrificed children, forced men and women into prostitution, sold members of their families into slavery for profit, they killed and tortured their enemies for sport and they refused to repent even when they can see the power of God heading their way just over there. So this cup of the Amorites is full and God would be unjust if he didn't judge them. But this also shows that God's first thought was for mercy he gave them time to turn to him and if they had repented, God would have forgiven them and spared them like Rahab and her family. And the discomfort we have for some of the things in Joshua is because the conquest shows God fulfilling one more promise. And I think this is a promise that we like a little less. And that's his promise that he will judge sin. And that anyone who's not on the side of God's anointed, the new, new Joshua, Jesus, who fought the battle against our real enemies, sin and death, anyone not on his side will be judged and face the consequences. 
And how did Jesus win? By letting himself be killed. Jesus took on the forces of evil and darkness and clothed himself in our sin. So the divine warrior dies and wins. God always wins. And we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. God doesn't just win, he wins for you. And you can enter his rest. And, as it turns out, you can fight on his side. But it's a different kind of fight. What does the fight look like? Well, we might get some clues by the kind of armour we're told to put on. If we flip ahead to the New Testament and we look at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, Paul tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate plate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the kind of armour we need for the battle. One last thing. Remember in chapter 24 where God lists all the things that he has done where he said, I did this, I gave that. We might expect, or maybe hope, that at the end of that list, God says, so I do everything and you can just put your feet up. Instead, in verse 14, it says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him. In Joshua, all of these promises are meant to encourage us, but they're meant to encourage us to act and to be faithful, and to be adventurous. We're called to action even in our rest. And God will be with us. And we all know that we have work to do because the vision for our church is that at New Life, we long to see New Life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the growing southwest for their salvation, the good of the community, And the glory of God. In order to do that, we'll need to be faithful and adventurous, but also to have God fighting with us. So let's finish the way Joshua finishes. Joshua says, Choose this day who you'll serve. We have to make our minds up. Choose this day who you will serve, knowing that God always keeps his promises. So onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Amen.